Today we come to the fifth portrait of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 11, looking at verses 1 to 10, the portrait of the humble shoot. It's the first portrait that we've considered in chapters 1 to 12, the first main section in the great prophecy of Isaiah. And amid the roaring threats of judgment in these chapters, we hear the quiet, repeated strain of salvation. The good news comes with the background of the bad news. A Rolex watch, a diamond ring, a gold necklace, a silver bracelet, a pair of gem earrings can be seen in the shop window of Murray's Jewellers just up the road in Regent Street. All of these pieces are beautiful in themselves and would look amazing on any one of us here. But what accentuates their beauty, what causes them to be eye-catching, is that they are displayed on a dark background. Chapters 9 verse 8 to 11 in Isaiah is a section about the dark background of God's judgment on Israel. 9.8 says... The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. Israel will be judged. Assyria who took them captive in 722 BC will also be judged. 10.5 to 19 says. However, a remnant of captive people will survive. And chapter 10 verse 20 to 34 describe that surviving remnant who will return to the land of Israel. And adjoined to that message of hope at the end of chapter 10 is this message in 11 verses 1 to 10 of the coming Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. We considered a similar description of Jesus in chapter 4, a fortnight ago. Here is an enlargement of that prophecy. Jesse is mentioned in verse 1 and verse 10, which grammatically forms an inclusion and identifies verses 1 to 10 as a distinct section in Isaiah's prophecy. We think of the coming of Jesus the Messiah We think of the character of Jesus the Messiah and we think of the church of Jesus the Messiah in this wonderful prophecy in Isaiah 11. The coming of Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah, verse 1 states, will come from the line of Jesse, the father of David. And this coming is described in two ways. He's described as a shoot in verse 1 from the stump of Jesse. The line of Jesse, his descendants will sink into a low condition. They will become like a stump of a tree. But Jesus the Messiah will come from that lowly stump. Forest imagery, and this will please John. Forest imagery is popular with Isaiah in describing the state of the nations in Isaiah. In chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, the exile of Israel is described in terms of a forest of trees being destroyed. And that can be taken literally or metaphorically. 
Then in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, the fate of Assyria is described in terms of trees being lopped. So the theme of trees is now continued into chapter 11, verse 1, of Israel being humbled, the line of Jesse entering into a lowly state, the stump of the tree of Jesse will be burned and humiliated. All the signs of vitality in the line of Jesse will have gone. However, a hidden vitality in the burnt up or cut down stump will remain. And from that lowly stump, Jesus, the Messiah, will arise. There shall come forth a shoot, verse 1 says, from the stump of Jesse. There's a contrast with the mighty nation of Assyria here. Assyria will be felled like a lopped tree in 10, 33 and 34. And it will be finished as a nation. But though Judah will also be felled. Though the line of Jesse will be brought down. It will not be finished. Jesus the Messiah will come from that humiliated nation. Here is hope. For the people of God in Isaiah's time, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. But incredibly, not only is Jesus described as a shoot from Jesse, in verse 10, he's described as the root of Jesse. The shoot is also the root. That is, he is the source the origin, the sustainer, the protector of the Messiah's family in which he will be born. He is the root of Jesse. The one born will have existed before he was born. The child who arrives is also the eternal God. The one beginning as a baby in Bethlehem in humility had no beginning as the everlasting God, the Son. The one who existed as man in the time of Joseph and Mary in 1 AD also existed in the time of Jesse in 1000 BC and even long before that. The shoot of Jesse is also described as the root of Jesse. Overseeing all of history, managing, protecting, sustaining until that moment that he comes as the saviour of the world. What is Prince William battling for in these days? Is he battling for the survival of the crown? In the light of his brother's allegations is the future of the monarchy in the UK under threat? Will the royal line cease in our nation? Are all the actions, plans, schemes of William and Kate and the palace now with a view to the preservation of the monarchy among us? Jesus was the root of Jesse, managing that godly line, sustaining and protecting it until he became the shoot which emerged from Jesse. The coming of Jesus, the Messiah. 
And in our application at this point, let me address your intellect and then your emotions. First, your mind. I anticipate a question that you have about verse 1 and 10. And your question is, why mention Jesse at all? He's hardly mentioned in the Bible, so why mention him? Is this not odd? And it is not odd. Alec Mateer states it emphasizes that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. In the book of Kings, successive kings were compared with David. But no king is called or considered so great as to equal David, be called David, or even described as the son of Jesse. Among the kings of Israel, David alone is the son of Jesse. Thus the phrase, shoot, from the stump of Jesse has great significance. Hosea makes a similar point in chapter 3 verse 5. He says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. The mention of Jesse therefore means that David, the greatest king, is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect David, the supreme son of Jesse, the perfect king, greater than the greatest king in the Old Testament. As we think of this today, We're called to submit to Jesus, our King, the perfect King, in every area of our lives, in the tone of our speech, in the use of our time, in our attitude to our enemy. And let us trust him when life takes a strange turn, and our life will take a strange turn. The second application is to our emotions. Young people, have you been bullied or ridiculed because you're a ginger, fat, from the country, wear glasses or have a big honker? This prophecy indicates the Messiah will experience ridicule. The idea of meanness and contempt is included in this prophecy of Jesse. David was called the son of Jesse in a contemptuous way in 1 Samuel 22 verse 7. Jesse lived in Bethlehem, the least of the cities of Judah. He was not from the big city of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, we read of Jesse that he had a few sheep. He was a small-time farmer. The term of Jesse includes ridicule. So Jesus, of Jesse, understands your position. If you're being bullied, mocked, ribbed on the school bus, in the canteen, in the playground... He understands and he cares. He was despised and rejected by men. Talk to him about your trouble, your loneliness, your lack of self-worth, your pain, your struggle to get out to school each day, the darkness and fear that envelops your mind. 
Talk to your parents. Perhaps someone here, your church elder or your peers. They'll help you. They'll listen. They'll care. The coming of the Messiah. The shoot of Jesse. The root of Jesse. But secondly, this passage describes for us the character of Jesus the Messiah. He will come from the line of Jesse, but we're asking, what will he be like? How will he appear? What will he do? And this section advances our understanding of Jesus. In verse 1, it asserts, he shall bear fruit. The fruit of this shoot is a metaphor for the life and the work and the character of Jesus. We're familiar with this phrase in Psalm 1, the blessed person bears fruit. That is the life, the character, the speech, the action of that person pleases God and influences others for good. They bear fruit, Psalm 1 says, in the parable of the sower. The seed sown on the good ground, Jesus asserts, bears fruit, some 30, 60, some 100. So the life of Jesus bears fruit. This shoot, this small twig, this fragile branch shall bear fruit. It will not just survive, exist, or grow. It will be fruitful. The life, the speech, the ministry, the work, the graces of Jesus will be powerful, exemplary, and influential. This fruitfulness is amazing that from the stump of a tree will come a fruitful shoot. That amazed the people of his time. You remember the skepticism of Nathaniel when he asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a lowly place. It was in the north of Palestine, bordering Gentile nations, inhabited by Roman soldiers stationed there. The Gentiles and the Romans had influenced the morals and religions of Nazareth. If ever there was a place that could be likened to the stump of a tree, it was Nazareth, morally and religiously. And so Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But there was. Jesus, the Messiah, the root shall bear fruit. Unlikely though it was, his person, his work, his life will be beautiful, vibrant, and gloriously effective. Perhaps you feel like a twig, a young person from a humble background, a poor family, a rough estate in the town. You're not the smartest person in your class, yet your life can bear fruit for God. Perhaps you're old, with no energy, you live alone. Your life also can be effective for God. But how will Jesus do it? And how can any of us have a fruitful life from God, for God? The prophecy asserts that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Verse 2. The Messiah is fruitful because he's equipped by God for the mission that God has given to him. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill various tasks detailed here. 
were to understand the phrases as describing ministries which Jesus fulfills. Wisdom and understanding in verse 2 refers in the Old Testament to leadership roles. In Deuteronomy 1.13, 1 Kings 3.9, wisdom and understanding are used in connection with government and leadership. Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, will govern and lead with wisdom and understanding. He will have the ability to render right decisions at the right time. That's wisdom. He will have understanding referring to insight of the true nature of things with wisdom and understanding. He will govern. Counsel and might refers to planning activities, schemes, purposes, and then being able to carry them out. Counsel and then might. Planning and then carrying out those decisions and those schemes. Jesus, the Messiah, empowered by the Spirit, has counsel and might. A knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will know God. Not in a peripheral way or a shallow manner, but he will know God intimately and truly. And and the resulting aspect of that knowledge will, will be that he fears the Lord. That he will live his life devoted to this God and submissive to him. Messiah will be fruitful. And that fruitfulness will emerge from the spirit of the Lord resting Upon him. And for parents and grandparents here, this is a most helpful passage, isn't it? We want the best for our children and for our grandchildren, but what is the best for them? It is a spirit filled life. The spirit producing in our children what a university or a high flying job cannot achieve. Here is Jesus who will be a carpenter, who will not attend the rabbinic schools of Jerusalem. Yet his life will be fruitful, his character most admirable because the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. So in all our desires for our children and our grandchildren, let us at the very heart of those desires and vision and counsel include in our prayers the prayer that our children and grandchildren will know the filling of the Holy Spirit. He produces the wisdom and understanding, the knowledge and fear of the Lord, the counsel and the might. But how does such a spirit-filled person live? Jesus' inward and outward character is described in verses 3 and 4. His inner delight and joy is in the fear of the Lord. The word delight in verse 3 is from the noun scent. The verb to smell an odor comes to mean to delight in. We, we smell the roses. We delight in the roses. Smell and delight is, is something that's very close together. And so it is here. He delights in the fear of the Lord. That is 
not only in his own life and in his own practice, but also as he sees it in others. Kings look for strengths in others, wit or knowledge which they can exploit and and use and, and bring to bear in their plans. But Jesus takes delight in those who fear the Lord. And his outward actions are described in verse 4 and 3. He will not judge by what his eyes see. He will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. His judgment will not be superficial. It will not be based on rumors or on hearsay. But he will judge and make decisions on truth and equity and on what is right. And this brings us to our children's address and the piece of clothing in verse 5 which summarizes the character of the coming Messiah. He will be eager to serve God. As the warriors of Isaiah's day would tuck in their clothes in preparation for the conflict, ready, eager to face their enemies and conquer more land, so Jesus will be like one who tucks in his garments into his belt as one eager and ready and willing and powered by the Holy Spirit to live a life in honor and praise to God. But that enthusiasm of Jesus is bounded with the parameters in verse 5 of righteousness and faithfulness. That earnestness is controlled and managed so that what he does will be characterized by right and by good. I don't agree with the U.S. Marines' motto that some decision is better than no decision. Not to act is always better than to act wrongly. Not to speak a word in a heated situation is better than to speak a wrong word. Ideally, we want to act and speak in right and faithful ways and words. And here is Jesus, ready to serve, eager to serve, like a warrior with his clothes tucked into his belt. But he does it within the parameters of righteousness and faithfulness. The coming of the Messiah, the character of the Messiah, empowered by the Spirit, And lastly, the church of the Messiah. And in verses 6 to 10, we have this description of the Messiah's people, the Messiah's kingdom. And what a kingdom it is. It is a kingdom of peace. And wonderful language is used here in verses 6 and 7 of reconciliation. The predators such as the wolf and the leopard and the lion. And the prey such as the lamb and the goat and the calf. The reconciled. There is peace within the kingdom and people of Jesus. In the first line, we have this graphic phrase, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The word dwell here literally means to welcome as a temporary resident. It's as if the lamb in this kingdom of Jesus depicted here invites the wolf into its house Such is the peace, such is the reconciliation that this coming Jesus will effect. The most unlikely of reconciliations will be effected by the power, the ministry, the doctrine, 
the influence of Jesus. Even a fattened calf in verse number 6, so attractive to a lion or a wolf, will be allowed to exist and survive. And there will be inside change in verse 7. The cow and the bear will eat the same food as the lion and the ox. There will be incredible transformation depicted here. This inward change which Messiah in his coming, in his kingdom, in his salvation will effect. This reconciliation and regeneration is experienced in the church now. Verse 10 of chapter 11 is applied to this gospel age by Paul in Romans chapter 15. This is happening now. This peace that's depicted here, this inner transformation that's described here is something ongoing among us. Commentators have cited Acts 16 where the Philippian jailer and Lydia are in the same church. Here's a wolf and a lamb and they worship together. The Jews and the Gentiles once at each other's throat in the Christian church are living and worshipping together. The lion and the lamb lying down together in Christ's church. And because Jesus prizes peace and reconciliation, we should prize it too. We should do all we can within our families and the church family to, to mend rifts, to create peace, to provide harmony and reconciliation. The coming of Jesus the Messiah, the character of Jesus the Messiah, the church of Jesus the Messiah begun here, but obviously with echoes of the Garden of Eden and looking forward to that glorious restoration of all creation in that coming day. But how will it happen? How will this tremendous transformation happen in the church now and in heaven in the future? The verses say in verse number 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As people know God savingly, they will be transformed into people who once enjoyed argument and disharmony to people of peace and unity and oneness. They will know the Lord. And that knowledge will transform them. And what a knowledge it is. A knowledge not just about the graces of Jesus the Messiah, but a knowledge also about the grief of Jesus, indicated in verse 10. He will stand as a signal for the peoples. Here is this shoot, this humble shoot, this unnoticed shoot, but suddenly this shoot is noticed. He shall stand as a signal for the people. He will be lifted up. He will be public. He will be prominent as he's held up on the cross of Calvary for the world to see as the redeemer of sinners and the savior of men. He will be noticed. He will stand as a signal for the people. And in his ascension, his resting place or his home 
shall be, and it should be a noun, glory. He will enter after his finished work into the presence of God and sit down at the right hand of God. And it's the knowledge of this Lord in his graces, in his virtues, but also in his redemptive work that will bring regeneration and reconciliation within the church and the new creation to come. And so today we look to him. We trust in him. We follow him. In his spirit-empowered life, in his drive for peace and reconciliation and a new creation.